the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, 800 years of industry in the liberties of Dublin. Huge efforts are being made to look at our industries and develop them with one eye on the American market. So it's a hugely important industrial site for Dublin. Cathy Scuffle on the storied history behind Greenmount Mill, a centuries-old centre of innovation and enterprise. And to begin this evening, we'll explore the life and death of Liam Lynch as we open up a new biography of the Republican leader. Liam Lynch was one of the key figures of the Irish Revolutionary Period. In the Irish War of Independence, as officer in command of the Cork No. 2 Brigade, he planned several prominent guerrilla actions against British forces. Adamantly opposed to the Anglo-Irish Treaty, Lynch became the Chief of Staff of the Anti-Treaty IRA in 1922. On his passing on the 10th of April 1923, he was the undisputed leader of Irish Republicanism. IRA volunteer Todd Andrews wrote that with Lynch's death, I knew the end of the Civil War had come, only his iron will had kept it going in the last few months. A new book called Liam Lynch to Declare a Republic uses a wide array of archival material to paint a nuanced portrait of the Republican. The author is historian Gerard Shannon, who joins me now. Gerard, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thanks very much, Miles. Now, he was born in a... Uh, pronounce the name of the townland for me, if you would, because I will, I'm not even going to attempt it. Barnagera. Just Barnagera. outside the village of Anglesborough. Thank, you, very, thank yeah. you very much. There are two, <laughs> one or two too many syllables for me. Uh, so he's born in the townland of Barnagera, near the village of Anglesborough in rural Limerick. And he was the second youngest of seven children of Mary and Jeremiah Lynch. Catholic family, very devoted Catholic family, but yeah. also very devoted Republicans. So yeah. he would have been reared on stories of the Fenians, I suppose. Very much so. His father, Jeremiah, was a Fenian, as was his uncle, John Lynch. They attempted to participate in the 1867 Rising at an instant at a Kilmallock village in Limerick, and the town was surrounded by British forces. But as well as that, his mother, Mary, born Mary Kelly, later Mary Lynch, of course, she was a member of the Ballyanders Ladies' Land League. So already you have that radical tradition within Lynch's family. But a lot of accounts of his childhood talk about him as a very kind of um, devoted reader of Irish history, particularly revolutionary history. His hero was uh, Patrick Sarsfield from the William Knight Siege train destruction after the Battle of the Boyne. And he read a lot of very famous Republican-inclined texts, such as uh, John Mitchell's Jail Journal, Speeches from the Dock, and so on. So you can see how he was influenced in the way that he was. Uh, devoted Catholic family and a couple of priests in the family as well. And he looked pretty priestly himself. Yeah, which is often commented on by a lot of his contemporaries at a very kind of priestly, quiet disposition. Yeah, two of his brothers were priests, Martin Lynch and his youngest brother, Tom Lynch. Uh, Tom and Liam were the closest in age. And Tom and Liam were particularly close. We're very lucky that we've over 30 letters that Liam wrote to Tom over the course of the revolutionary period. And it helps to give us a great personal insight into Lynch himself as a person and what he was thinking at the time. And also, Tom was clearly, as a priest, a sort of a spiritual counsel to Liam. Like Liam refers to in one letter that Tom's words give him great encouragement, you know, through his revolutionary activities. Kind of definitely gives him solace as the period goes on. Now, you quote an interview with his, his teacher. He's certainly the photographs of him and he looks very, very studious. And the teacher recalled somebody with a mild, quiet disposition, not somebody that immediately impressed that teacher. 
Yeah, and you see this from accounts of his earlier life that he was an individual that didn't really kind of stand out, so to speak. I, I think even a better description than what his teacher, that's Patrick Kiley, gave him was actually Lynch's godmother, a lady called Hannah Cleary, a very forgotten figure in his story and a great influence on him. She was a distant cousin, daughter of a Fenian herself, and she's described as kind of the local mod gone McBride of the area. She kind of would have taught him ballads, lent him a lot of these books and so on. And she said Liam was quiet and gentle and he didn't notice him much as a child. And this seems to even go on into his young adulthood when he was working as a shop assistant in nearby Mitchellstown. Moss Toomey, who would have been very closely aligned with him later in the Cork Number no. 2 Brigade, kind of talks about him as a very unlikely type to be a leader of men, a leader of soldiers. He refers to him as having the appearance of a scholar and so on. And Toomey was kind of writing ironically, but of course, because of course later Toomey is one of the most devoted you know, allies of Lynch and very devoted to his memory and commemoration for decades after. Yeah, he certainly doesn't come across as a Jeremiah Dunham and Ross or anything like that. No, no. Eyesight problems as well, didn't he, from an early age? Very early age. And he was very insecure about his eyesight. Uh, he complained about it in class one day. Patrick Kiley talked about this and he had very kind of thick glasses from then after. He had a very, very poor eyesight. When the Irish Volunteers, this was this surprised me, Irish Volunteers split in 1914. Like most Irish Volunteers, he, he actually took John Redmond's side of the argument. Yeah, that was probably one of the biggest surprises I had in researching the book. Um, like, he initially joins the Mitchellstown Volunteers in 1914. And as you say, once the Redmondite split happens later that summer, Lynch goes to the National Volunteers. And this is very well documented by several contemporaries. His brother Martin Lynch says in a letter to Lynch's first biographer, Florio Donoghue, that he actually met his brother Liam at the review of the National Volunteers in the Phoenix Park in 1915. Some of us would know that famous photo of John Redmond being presented by, you know, flags by mm. the National Volunteers there, and they would have marched to O'Connell Street to hear John Redmond give a speech. Like, Liam Lynch was present at that event. And he becomes radicalised, though, I think, in, in 1916, when he witnessed the arrest of the Kent brothers in, in Fermoy. Tell us about that. Tell us who they were, because uh, uh, one of them is subsequently executed. Yeah, so the Kent brothers, they were leaders of the uh, volunteers in Cork. There is a Norrisley assault on their home at Bannard House, just outside Fermoy. Now, there's four brothers. One of them, Richard, unfortunately, the youngest, is killed. And the Kent brothers were brought through the streets of Fermoy after they were arrested. Uh, Thomas and his brother, William Kent, they're actually led barefoot through the streets of Fermoy by the RAC as they're taken to the barracks. And Liam Lynch is there on the bridge of Fermoy and he witnesses this event. So he sees this, you know, up close, like how the Kents are treated in the aftermath of their arrest. And this is what completely radicalises him. And this is, this is like, according to several accounts of people, John Joe O'Brien, who was later active in the East Limerick Brigade of the IRA, he talks about meeting Lynch, you know, on the road outside Fermoy, you know, after the arrests and particularly after Thomas's execution on the 9th of May. And he knew Lynch as a Redmondite. And Lynch says to him, we should have been out. Every one of us should have been out with them. Tom Lynch's brother talks about that, you know, that night after Thomas Kent's execution, Liam Lynch made a vow and to devote himself to the Republic and so on. So this is the one singular event, like mm. many of that generation, that completely radicalises Lynch, the executions of the leaders. But the fact that Lynch witnessed one of them being arrested, knowing that he was executed later, completely radicalises him into the Republican cause. Fermoy would not have been the safest place in Ireland to be a radical Republican, would it? No, Fermoy was very much a garrison town. I mean, this is where Lynch was working. He initially worked in Mitchellstown as a shop assistant, then he's working in Fermoy. Fermoy had like two barracks of British soldiers there. And, you know, there would have been a very kind of a British soldiering tradition within the town itself. So it wouldn't really have been a hotbed of republicanism at the time. 
He was particularly radical, I think, and came to the attention of uh, someone like the Moss McCurtain, for example, during the conscription crisis in 1918. He was quite active, wasn't he? Yeah, and that, that, that comes from when he joined the volunteers. So the, the, for my company, the volunteers is kind of reformed, shall we say, in 1917. Lynch joins us, becomes first lieutenant, and he quickly works his way up the ranks to the point that he becomes adjutant of the Fermoy Battalion of the Corps Brigade. And he begins a kind of a method of his military leadership that follows him throughout the period that he kind of goes up and down all the company areas. He has conferences with the officers on the ground. He gets to know the men, you know, really puts himself forward as a leader. And this is what wins the respect of the men, the admiration of the men, and would have brought him to the attention of leaders like Tomas McCurtain. And it's particularly during the conscription crisis that seems to bring him to prominence, like this sort of caught the attention of McCurtain, you know, all the activity in the protests around around the conscription crisis involving the volunteers, then Lynch would have been very heavily involved in that within his locality and so on. So it's not surprising, you know, shortly before the War of Independence begins in early January 1919, when the Corps Brigade is split into three brigades, that Liam Lynch, with the unanimous voting of the officers under his command, becomes the head of the Cork Number no. 2 Brigade, which encompasses much of North Cork. And they made a good choice because he comes into his own during the War of Independence as a military strategist, doesn't he? Very much so. And I, I think this is kind of one of the most fascinating, one of those admirable things about him that, you know, he had no soldiering experience. Mm. Like, his family didn't have that. You know, he seems to be kind of driven very much into this. And no inclination in 1914, no. even though he was a Redmond supporter, to join the British Army or anything Yeah, like no, that. his brother Tom is that as well he had no interest in that he was a bit bemused by Redmond's call to join the British Army there's no suggestion he ever contemplated that himself you know when it comes to him as a volunteer leader you know later on just before the War of Independence you know he studied a lot of books on military strategy and so on and he's driven by this very kind of strong sense of self-belief in himself and his cause like you know and again very unlikely from the kind of younger more shy and socially awkward man he was before this period. So it's, it's quite an extraordinary transformation for him by the beginning of the War of Independence. He has a stroke of luck in 1920 because he's captured alongside Terence McSweeney. Yes. We know where the capture of Terence McSweeney leads to, but uh, he was luckier. Yeah, it's very interesting. So obviously Terence McSweeney was also of Cork and one brigade, corporate uh, Cork City. In early August 1920, Lynch receives a message intended for McSweeney. Now, we don't know the nature of that message. Um, it seems to confuse Larry O'Donoghue, his first biographer, as much as myself. But he deems it important enough to go to Cork City and meet McSweeney in Cork City Hall. He there he meets him with other leading officers at Cork, number one. And suddenly they're arrested. There was obviously British intelligence that revealed their location. And Lynch is swept up along with McSweeney and the others. Now, he gives a false name, which probably saved his life. They're brought to Cork Jail where a hunger strike has already begun amongst Republican prisoners, including Lynch's close friend in Cork No. 2 Brigade, Michael or Mick Fitzgerald. Um, Lynch is let go after several days. McSweeney stays on. He's moved to Brixton Prison. And as we know, his hunger strike kind of catapults the Irish Revolution into international headlines. But Lynch had a very narrow escape there due to him giving that false name. And of course, nobody remembers Mick Fitzgerald. No, He no. suffered the same fate as yes, McSweeney. Yes, of course, yes. Yeah. When it came then to the truce, uh, like a lot of IRA commanders, he just viewed it. Uh, he had, a, I think, presumably you could say a fairly sceptical approach to it. He just looked upon it as a respite, an opportunity to, to recover, to revamp and to train, train, train. Yeah, the truce, in the minds of Lynch and other leading commanders at the time, the truce was a means to train, drill, get arms on, get ready for... Gather the, intelligence and as gather well. Gather intelligence, of course, and prepare for resumption of war against the British, which Lynch and others believed was pending soon. And you see this in a lot of kind of uh, comms that Lynch sends to GHQ and others at the time, like this idea that, like, we have to be ready, we have to maintain discipline, you know, 
know, he kind of d- d- complains about volunteers drinking putching and so on, kind of the, the usual kind of ill-discipline that you might have seen at that time. But Lynch is looking towards the resumption of war with the British. He's not foreseeing any kind of, you know, split in the revolutionary movement as happened with the signing of the treaty. Now, he is, because of what happens during the Civil War itself, he is seen as very much of a hardliner. But I think during the period immediately after the treaty negotiations and after the acceptance by the Allaire in, in January of 1922 of the treaty, he was open to some sort of compromise. Yeah, which is very interesting. Um, he was on the IRB Supreme Council by the time of the signing of the treaty. We have it from memoirs of Liam Deshi and Sean Murtal, who's very close to Liam Lynch, that Lynch was aware a compromise was coming. Like, Collins kept the Supreme Council informed as much as he can of the treaty of the treaty negotiations. There's even a suggestion in Amertel's memoir that Lynch was central to the drafting of this alternative vote that the IRB put forward. Now, Lynch, like others, is completely shocked at the signing of the treaty on the 6th of December 1921. The IRA's first sudden division, of which Lynch is in charge of, which encompasses three corps brigades, three care brigades, and the West Limerick Brigade, they're the first division to publicly come out against the treaty. Now, what's very interesting about their statement is they are opposed to it, but they kind of offer caveats. They offer kind of suggestions about renegotiating, particularly in terms of the oath and you know the ports and so on. So Lynch is already kind of opening himself up there to some sort of a compromise. He sees the IRA as the means to bring both sides together after the split. Like Lynch didn't have any time for politics. That's very clear from very early on. Something he writes to his brother in one letter, he says, the army has to hew the way to freedom for politics to follow. To him, the army, the IRA, is always first and political activities in the background. So when Lynch begins kind of negotiations and discussions with the likes of Richard Mulcahy and Michael Collins, it's, it's to kind of bring them both together in, into a unified IRA. Now, at the same time, he's setting out his stake, you know, very early on. He aligns himself with members of the IRA GHQ that are opposed to treaties such as Rory O'Connor, Liam Mellows, Sean Russell, Seamus O'Donovan and so on. And it's for that reason that he's elected the anti-treaty IRA chief of staff at this banned IRA convention in March 1922, which is kind of demonstrates, I think, the military prestige and the respect within the IRA firm at that time that he becomes the chief of staff. But when he's in these negotiations and conferences with Collins and Mulcahy and O'Duffy, he's negotiating as the anti-treaty IRA chief of staff. He's, he's making it clear, look, I'm open to compromise, but it must be adhered to the Republican ideals that we have fought for previously. There's an assumption that anybody who was opposed to the treaty was in favour of the occupation of the four courts in April 1922. That's mm. simplistic. That wasn't actually the case. Yeah. Where did he stand on the occupation of the four courts? Well, it's interesting. The relation that he has with some of those on his own side, just Rory O'Connor and Lee Mellows, is a little mixed, shall we say. I think what has Lynch a bit stuck at the beginning, that his base of operations is down in Mallow and Cork. The actual O'Connor and Mellows are up in Dublin, you know, the centre of activity, you know, our nation's capital, so to speak. I mean, I, I, it's not very clear what he thought of the occupation of the four courts by the executive forces, but he does have an office set up in the four courts very early on. There's an amusing mention of him uh, writing to the officer look, overlooking the garrison to kind of keep the place tidy and so on, like to maintain kind of cleanliness and standards within the four courts itself. But it's a very mixed relationship he has with some of those on his own side. I mean, there's a near outbreak of the Civil War in March 1922. In Limerick. In Limerick, yeah, in Limerick. And there you have the likes of Ernie O'Malley and Tom Barry in opposition to the pro-treaty IRA commandant Michael Brennan because the pro-treaty IRA are occupying barracks and specific buildings and they're not letting the local 
IRA force, which are anti-treaty, occupy these buildings too. And Lynch is sent down with Oscar Trainer, who's also anti-treaty, to try and negotiate a settlement there. And Lynch writes to his brother Tom thereafter, he goes, the stunt in Limerick was a disgrace to both sides. Like, he's condemning those on his own sides. And mm. you see this recurs sometimes in his So course. he's not absolutely gung-ho for civil war. No, he's, he's not out for blood at this stage. No, he's not out for blood. He's not out for fighting amongst his, his former comrades, shall we say. And he doesn't really have time for, as he refers to it, the diehards who might jeopardise that situation. What is his role then in the initial four to five months of the civil war when it is conventional war basically and the national army are moving around taking the cities particularly the coastal cities sometimes from the from the sea sometimes from land so that what's he doing during that conventional phase as the chief of staff of the ira well, I think I often think of it as total improvisation. I mean, the problem with Lynch and those in the anti-treaty side, they didn't prepare a grand strategy or a plan as to what to do if civil war broke out. All their energies in just before the outbreak on the 28th of June is devoted to kind of repairing that split. And then in June, just before the civil war began, it's repairing the split on their own side. Lynch is briefly deposed as chief of staff, replaced by Joe McKelvey. He's locked out of the forecourts by the likes of O'Connor and Mellows. So when the Civil War begins on the 28th of June 1922, Lynch resumes the role of Chief of Staff and he takes, he and his officers go down south to be, to set up a Republican base down south. Now, this is sometimes referred to as the Monster Republic, which is a bit inaccurate. Well, it's considerably inaccurate because Lynch never uses that term himself. There's no formal alternate state set up called the Monster Republic. It was to maintain the south for the existing republic, blow the Limerick-Waterford line, maintain this territory, and it's a sort of a Republican base of defence against the free state forces. Now, Lynch doesn't anticipate as do none of the other anti-treaty IRA leadership, anticipate the coastal landings in Kerry and Cork and so on. And the fact that the National Army of the Free State, as to what the pro-treaty IRA becomes, they have more weaponry, they have more men, they have more money and resources backing them up. So they weren't prepared for this. Um, I mean, you see it in comms that Lynch is advising strategy and so on, but that's all he can do. They're not ready for it. There's a temporary truce in Limerick. I mean, ironically, Limerick again becomes a flashpoint. In early July 1922, Lynch negotiates a temporary truce with Michael Brennan, the pro the IRA commander. Brennan kind of secretly moves his own forces into the city and the truce quickly breaks down and Lynch, and Lynch advocates a withdrawal from Limerick by the 11th of July. And Limerick essentially is the beginning of the end of that conventional warfare as we discuss it because as Lynch and Brennan recognise whoever holds Limerick City over the River Shannon holds the South and it's just a matter of time after that. By early August, Republicans have lost all their territory in the South. And when they lose places like Waterford and Cork, for example, yes. where does that leave the IRA and uh, where does it leave Lynch? Because I think he was, he's essentially the casting vote in we're going to keep going. Oh yeah, all, all throughout. Like. And you see even before some of these places collapse, he's writing in comms to the likes of Ernie O'Malley who had been over the East Command that we may have to return to the guerrilla tactics of old. I mean, this is what Lynch knew best, guerrilla warfare. I mean, he was exemplary guerrilla commander during the War of Independence and that's borne out in the actions like Fermoy and in Mallow, you know, that he oversaw at the time. He's a brilliant lo- local guerrilla commander. His gifts don't really translate into being an effective commander-in-chief mm-hmm. of the whole country for the IRA across the country. So... It's not really surprising that he's, he's almost relishing this return to guerrilla tactics. He issues an operation order in early August to advocate that, you know, the IRA returns to the columns of old and so on. And you do see some limited localised success at this. You know, you, we think of Dundalk, we think of Kinmare and Kerry, Ballinan, Mayo. Like, the anti-treaty forces 
do succeed somewhat with the guerrilla tactics. I mean, we see it effectively with, you know, the death of Michael Collins on the 22nd of August, 1922, which Lynch is extraordinarily complimentary of towards Liam DC, you know, who writes a report to Lynch. Lynch replies that, you know, it's unfortunate that we had to shoot someone like Michael Collins who gets such service against the British, but like his loss will be a huge one for the Free State mm. side. Like Lynch recognises he's very proud of what they've accomplished in such actions. And by the end of 1922, certainly coming into the last few months of that year, you do see in Free State military reports and government sources, they recognise that the guerrilla tactics are working. I mean, they have limited, you know, more localised success, but they are kind of affecting the Free State administration and the military. I mean, you can see this in the casualties that results on the National Army side. So it's imperfect. It's a degree of improvisation that Lynch is always working on, but it is working. Now, we talked about him not being out for blood in early 1922, but after the executions begin in November, presumably he is out for blood because he's issuing orders that, uh, you know, we have to meet uh, force with force and we have to meet this particular kind of force with uh, something which is equally nasty. Yeah, is a considerable degree of ruthlessness sets in with Lynch from 1922. I mean, I was very struck by, there's a con that he writes to De Valera on the 17th of November 1922, where they're talking about Erskine Childers, who then, of course, is in custody. And Lynch says, well, I don't think the sentence against Childers is going to be extreme. The very day he writes that, four young Dublin IRA volunteers have been executed in command of jail by the National Army. Now, it's not clear, it's very clear to me that Lynch is probably not aware of this when he's writing this. But, I mean, that just there, right there, demonstrates that he wasn't ready for the executions. I mean, the legislation had been passed in September 1922. There's an IRA executive meeting in October. Even Ernie O'Malley in his memoir, The Singing Flames, says they didn't really discuss the execution policy at the executive meeting. They weren't expecting it. I think Lynch kind of expects the old bonds of camaraderie to win true. Mm. And, you know, they won't do it. They won't carry out these executions. When they begin, um, particularly with Erskine Childers, that Lynch issues a number of orders. One of them is to assassinate all politicians who signed what he terms the murder bill legislation. These are free state politicians. And Leading to the death of Sean Hales. Sean Hales, who ironically didn't vote in the legislation, mm. even though he was pro-treaty, he wasn't present. And Lynch actually says that, uh, he says in some comments that they didn't mean to shoot Hales, that they were actually aiming for Padraig O'Malley, mm. the deputy speaker of the Dáil at the time. But Richard Mulcahy in the doll after when they have the you know the reprisal executions of the four IRA executive leaders on the 8th of December Mulcahy cites Lynch's threat against the politicians as a reason for that necessity of that now you and I don't have to agree with that but like there's the government saying this is because of what Lynch said he was going to do this is why we carried out these reprisal executions I mean that's something Mulcahy says very clearly in his speech at the doll at the time and Lynch also advocates the targeting of homes of free state politicians and senators I mean there's a very tragic instance that I'm surprised hasn't really been looked into too much as we go to these centenaries but on the 10th of December 1922, the home of Sean McGarry is burnt down in Fairview, pro-treaty TD, and his seven-year-old son Emmett is killed. Mm. And de Valera writes to Lynch and he says, well, I think the death of the young boy has prevented the tide of sympathy rising up towards us with the executions. And Lynch very briefly just says, the McGarry case is very unfortunate, but that is the fortunes of war. And I, I just think that sums up the just kind of dark place we're in at this point in the conflict. What does he make then, because he's still alive at this stage, what does he make of what was going on in Kerry in March of 1923, 100 years ago? One of the best accounts we have of Lynch during the Civil War is Todd Andrews' memoir, Dublin Made Me. And it's one of the best accounts of Lynch during that period because Andrews was with Lynch in his last week. So Lynch in February 1923 decides to venture down south to the old First Southern Division area and try and get a sense on the ground as to how the conflict is going. He'd been in Dublin for a few months at that point. 
in March, Andrews and Lynch were passing through the first Southern Division area and they had the news of the killings of Ballyshady and he says Lynch was sick and nauseated at the news and as Andrews puts it, Lynch felt that if he had been in the pre-truce IRA as in like, you know, the old IRA, should we say, you, it's like you were born without the stain of the original sin. Like he knew the names of these men like Paddy O'Daly and Swan who were involved in advocating mm. these killings. So yeah, it's, it just comes to total shock to Lynch as well. But like, you know, as well, like there's an argument that some have made and Michael Hopkins makes this in his own book that, you know, Lynch didn't necessarily want to see through the, the full ruthless effect of his own orders. I mean, there's a order given in the South Tipperary area to kind of execute Free State supporters and Lynch kind of disavows that order like he gives out to the commanding officer who who issues that at the time so you know, it's it's just it's just very. I, I think I think I think it's important to note that Lynch's heart wasn't in the conflict. I mean, it wasn't you know, quote unquote, the glorious fight against the British, mm. shall we say? You know, he's writing very positive notes of encouragement throughout his thousands of comms that he issues at the time. But it's notable two personal items of correspondence that we have from him in September 1922. He writes to his brother Tom, and he says, um, "How could all our dreams have been so blighted?" You know, he's very kind of bitter at how the war is going. He writes to his mother, like his mother in December that year, and he says, would be to God that English hounds had tracked me down than old comrades who'd been false to their allegiance. You know, he's very bitter about how the conflict's going. Like, he's not he's not relishing this fight. Who would? Um, tell me about his death on the 10th of April, 1923. Well, his death on the 10th of April, 1923, that comes about as a result of an IRA executive meeting that is held in rural North Waterford near the Naira Valley from the 23rd to the 26th of March. Now, a lot of people on Lynch's side were advocating this meeting of the executive. So a lot of them felt like like by early 1923, Lynch is receiving reports that the war isn't going according to plan. There's thousands of Republicans imprisoned. Executions are continuing. And as Moss Toomey says in a report to him in early March, there's not much activity going on these days. They're not able to carry out like decent ambushes and that, like with the lack of men, resources, demoralization amongst the force and so on. So Lynch is there from the 23rd to the 26th of March with the IRA executive leadership, the ones that are not in prison. Eamon de Vlaire is present as well, but he has no power over the situation, and that, that was Lynch's choosing to do that. And Lynch is advocating that, you know, they should hold out and keep fighting because he has sent Sean Moylan, one of his top corps commandants, to get heavy artillery from uh, Germany. And the idea is that they get heavy artillery and with this piece or two of this, they're able to win the day and so on. Or they might set up a new Republican base in the West. Now, a lot of people would have said at the time, and you can read the comms, they do say it to him that this is not very realistic. But it's very clear from when they had the vote on the executive at this meeting to continue the fight. Lynch is the deciding vote for this to continue. But that's not the end of it. I mean, Lynch is aware that there's you know, differing views within the executive. They need to kind of be brought on side. He suggested they meet again on the 10th of April in a place called Araglen in northeast Cork. And Lynch knows they're not winning. It's important to note this because, like, others on Lynch's side were kind of advocating opening peace negotiations, such as Tom Barry, one of his, his top officers and so on. And Lynch knows that there's three options open to him. One is to surrender. One is to dump arms or one is to continue fighting. And of course, he favours to continue fighting. On the 10th of April, 1923, he is there at the base of the Knockmiddown Mountains in a safe house. There's a major National Army sweep for the area. And it's extraordinary even like they're talking about meeting because they're well aware that like they're being rounded up, they're being searched for throughout the area by National Army forces. And Lynch and a small group of his officers, including Frank Aiken, are being chased up the Knockmiddown Mountains by a column of National Army soldiers. And there's an open field on the mountain and... 
after a gunfight of 20 minutes, there's a lull and the group, Lynch's group, run out onto the field and a shot rings out from the National Army side and Lynch is hit. And Lynch is the only one wounded. Now, they try to carry Lynch. Lynch is a very tall, six-foot man. You know, he's very badly wounded in the abdomen. He demands that they let him go. They leave him down. They take his papers and his gun off him because, as you know, if, they, if he had his gun, he would have been yeah. liable to be executed. Mm. And he says, look, maybe they'll treat me. And it's very clear when Lawrence Clancy, who was the National Army Lieutenant, who led the column up the mountain, when they find Lynch there in the mountain, he's very badly wounded. They bring him to Walter's public house in Newcastle Village, just below the mountain there. And then he's taken to Clonmel Military Hospital, where he dies that night. And as you quoted at the start, like Todd Andrews said, only Lynch's iron will had kept the Civil War going. And what I, what I, I don't necessarily say that it marked the end of the Civil War. It's very much the beginning of the end of the Civil War when mm-hmm. Liam Lynch dies, like Frank Aiken issues the Dump Arms Order just a few weeks later. You mentioned somebody who was a tall, thin, ascetic individual with glasses. And you can see where I'm going with this because some of the National Army soldiers who have been involved in the the shooting of Liam Lynch think that they've got de Valera. That's a very kind of a darkly amusing aspect of that account. So when they find Lynch there on the mountainside, one of the soldiers is like yelling, we got Dev, we got Dev, sir, because they would have known, according to their intelligence, the name in de Valera, along with the other Republican leadership, are in the area at the time. And Lawrence Clancy he had seen Dev, uh, according to his account, he'd seen Dev in person at some event and he knew it wasn't Dev and he says, you're not Dev, who are you? And Liam Lynch goes, I'm Liam Lynch and Clancy goes, are you the bloody chief of staff of the Irregulars? Of course, Irregular being mm. the propaganda term for Republicans and Lynch goes, uh, I am Liam Lynch, chief of staff of the Irish Republican Army. Get me a priest and a doctor. I'm dying. This is according to Clancy's account, of course. And it's, it's kind of ironic that he's mistaken for De Valera because Lynch and De Valera had a very poor relationship mm. during the Civil War. Couldn't have been more different people. Um, In conclusion, tell us about the mythology that has surrounded Lynch since his death, uh, uh, you know, assisted by things like the biography by Florio Donoghue. I think the the biography by Florio Donoghue, published in 1954, no other law, so he was a close contemporary of Lynch's, of course. And I think it's still a remarkable book in many ways, particularly his research. I mean, in the National Library, there's thousands of letters written to Flurry and research and so on, a lot of material that he actually didn't even manage to fit into the book, which is quite remarkable. But Flurry's book and Meter Ryan's book in 1986, while they both have great value and they're very important to understanding Lynch, they're very much in that subgenre of hagiography. Like they kind of glorify Lynch, you know, he didn't have many negative aspects to his personality and so on. But that's very in keeping with kind of biographies that have been published for years and so on. They do contribute a lot to the mythology around Lynch. I mean, think of when Lynch died at the 10th of April, 1923. He died before he was able to sit down seriously and contemplate that they might have to surrender. Like the heavy artillery that Sean Moylan was trying to get never came. I mean, there was no Republican base in the West was ever set up. I often wonder if he'd made that executive meeting, what would he have decided? I mean, there's an interesting comment that he sent to De Valera in February that I quote in the book, where he says, I might need you to open peace negotiations with the Free State at some point, but that time has not yet arrived. And of course, Frank Aiken then sees that time has arrived. So mm. will Lynch have got to that point? We don't know. But I think it's important for, as you say, the mythology around Lynch. I mean, he died the unconquerable, unbeaten Republican hero. I mean, it's not surprising to me he's commemorated so widely. I mean, he's commemorated different times a year in different places by several different groups. Yeah. I mean, he, he is that kind of distinguished Republican hero. And he doesn't go on to become a feed of cabinet minister. No, no, like many of his contemporaries. <laughs> Indeed, uh, yeah. like Frank Aiken, for example. Yeah, or so, Sean Moylan. Yeah, 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 remembered very, very differently. Anyway, yeah. uh, terrific book. Um, congratulations. The book is much. called Liam Lynch to Declare a Republic. It's published by Marion Press. The author is my guest, Jared Shannon. Jared, many thanks for joining us this evening. Thank you very much, Miles. 
After the break, 800 years of industry in the liberties of Dublin. Cathy Scuffle joins me to talk about the history behind Greenmount Mill. Stay with us. Welcome back. We're going to look now at the 800-year history of a site that illustrates the development of industry in Dublin and how industry was affected by the changing political tides over the centuries. Greenmount Mill in Harold's Cross was an active mill from the 12th century right up to the 20th century, and it played an important role in the development of the Liberties and the surrounding area. Dublin City Council Historian-in-Residence, Cathy Scuffle, has been researching the history of Greenmount Mill and joins me now in studio. Cathy, you're very welcome back to The History Show. Thank you very much, Miles. Thanks for having me. Okay, located for us, first of all, where exactly was Greenmount Mill and when did it first appear? Okay, to put it in an actual location, the easiest landmark nearby would be Harold's Cross Bridge across the Grand Canal. So it's located on a site just beside the canal. In fact, it's parallel to the canal for quite a bit of a distance. And the mill itself, the Victorian mill building is still there, but the history of the site is much bigger than that. So there actually has been four mills on that site over the years. And it goes right back to the usual suspects, the monks of the Abbey of St. Thomas in the Liberties of Dublin because it has the Poddle River as its power supply. Pre-Norman, post-Norman? or In and around, around the Normans. That, right, in and so around, around the, the Normans, top, but, no, yeah. but nothing to do with the Normans. No, nothing really. No, it's all to do with the liberty of Thomas Court and Denore, and this is the very outer reaches of that liberty, which we know as the liberties of Dublin today. And this is their mill on the outer reaches, so they have a number of mills within their area of interest. And if you like, the monks had increased the power supply to the River Poddle much further out by taking a diversion off the Dodder. And that's the, the mill in Temploga, Banlascorny. And that particular uh, weir gave an additional water supply to the Poddle to increase the flow of water for the mills further downstream. Because the Poddle has always been, to me anyway, a very mysterious river. I mean, it does... It tends to be an underground river for a lot of its course. Isn't it does it? now, but it wasn't always that course, way. Yeah, and now yeah. and again, it, it reappears in flood and lets <laughs> us know it's still there. But it's very, very important for this particular site because it was the power supply for the mills. OK, so there's a mill there from the 12th century. Do other industries develop in the area around the mill because there's a mill there? Very much so. In fact, it ends up there is, a, at one time, there would have been a brewery on the site also, <laughs> naturally enough. <laughs> and then that became an oil mill. And I'm researching still, but I think it may have used uh, some of the flax oil, uh, the linseed oil. It may have used some of that, but that bit I'm still researching. So it's a hugely important industrial site for Dublin. And obviously you're saying, first off, it's associated with the monks. But, you know, as time goes on, are there wealthy families associated with it or what happens there? This is where it gets very interesting because it's it's all tied up in the history of the Abbey. So as we know, it remains as the liberty of Thomas Court and Denor. Then we get Henry VIII entering into the story and basically the dissolution of the abbeys and the monasteries in Ireland and they're handed out then to a new uh, generation. And of course, in this case, the generation is the Earl of Meath. So this mill falls into the ownership of the Earl of Meath then at that time. And he uses it as a corn mill. From what I can see, the monks had it as a wood mill. 
and then it became a corn mill under the care of the Earl of Meath. All the time using the water to keep All the wheels going. All the time using the water, yeah. yeah so it doesn't really so. matter what it is. Mm. That particular stretch of the canal from Sally's Bridge down to Harrow's Cross is is as straight as a die. There's no bend at all. Is there a reason for that? Well, I'd say it was following the line of the South Circular Road, but it was very useful as another industry, as a knock-on effect from this particular mill, because this also became a rope walk, an area where ropes would be made. So all you need for a rope walk is a machine operated by one or two men at one end, somebody at the far end feeding it in and you need a straight line in order to plait or weave the rope itself. So again, this was a rope walk, again a byproduct from the mill itself. Where does the name come from, Greenmount? Okay, this is where it gets really interesting. It comes from a gentleman called James Greenham. Now, it seems to me that there was a bit of an epidemic of people calling things after themselves at this time in Dublin. And our James Greenham was no different. Uh, He lines up there with Natalian Warren, who gave us Warren Mount Fother in the Liberties. So James Greenham is a cotton manufacturer in Cork Street in Dublin, like a couple of his neighbours. He's actually one of three or four of them living in Dublin. And this is all in and around the early 1800s. So James Greenham is there. I have found evidence of experimental cotton growing down in Black Pits. So they were actually trying to grow it. So they weren't bringing it in from India. Well, they had to bring it in because obviously obviously it didn't work. But they did try it. So some of the addresses that you find in the registers, particularly in Wilson's in 1804, you find the cotton fields, black pits listed as an address. So there's experimental (laughs) cotton growing going on. And our James Green is definitely involved in this. Tell us a bit about James Green and what was his background? Uh, well, now his background is quite interesting. I think he's tied up with a family in the Midlands around Offaly because if you go back the registers you can start finding the family tree if you work it out slowly. But his huge connection with Dublin is certainly through the parish of St Catherine's again in the Liberties of Dublin which would be in Catherine's Street. Church in Thomas Can't Street exactly where Robert Emmett was yeah. executed. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and again this is all around the time of poor mm. Robert Emmett yeah. losing it. So James Greenham is connected with the church. He is a church warden. I found evidence of that. He is certainly involved in the Weaver's Guild. In fact, he is the master of the Weaver's Guild at some stage. And at that point, he allows the worsted weavers in to become part of the Weaver's Guild. So he's he's moving around the area quite a lot. Very involved. He pops up at various dinners. He's moving with the great names of the area. So the Earl of Meath, the Lord Concurry. You find him on lists associated with these people. So he's there and he's in society in Dublin and he pops up quite a bit in various registers. Employing roughly how many people? By the time he's at the height of his industry and this involved when he had mills in Roper's Rest near Black Pits in Dublin. He also had mills in Greenmount and then he takes on mills in the Temple Mills in Selbridge. At this point he's employing about... Is that where the weir comes from in Temple Mills? That's exactly where it is. About 1,600 weavers he's employing. He's a major employer. He is using the cotton that is imported by the Pims. So the Quaker Pym family are very much involved in bringing cotton into Dublin. And 
our James Greenham is also taking full advantage of the canal network. So his mills, if when you think about it, are linked up by the Grand Canal. Mm. Ard Clough in County Kildare is only two kilometres from that mill in Selbridge. So it would have been quite easy to move the goods up and down. And obviously he was a captain of industry. Did he, as did many captains of industry in those days, did he get involved in politics? He's a little bit involved in politics in the sense of he's involved in the improving the lot of the Catholics in Dublin. So you find him at a big, big Catholic dinner, which was brought about after the Act of Union to improve the lot of Catholics in Ireland. So very sympathetic to Catholics. The Act of Union seems to have affected him in some way as well, because that's when we realise he's starting to run out of money. He's gone a little bit too ambitious, but he's there, uh, more industry, and he has turned the mill now into a cotton spinning mill. It had been a corn mill. He takes it over then as a cotton spinning mill at Greenmount. There's a report apparently in the Irish Times, which talks about an assault on Greenham Maybe. in broad daylight in yeah. the in the coombe. Oh, was that, that was he mugged or, or was there something more behind it, do you think? Well, he definitely was mugged. And it's as you say, it certainly made the papers. He's walking down, I suspect, from his home in Cork Street down towards the Weavers Hall. And a, as was described in the papers, a ruffian uh, came up behind him and assaulted him. And the bystanders allowed the ruffian make his escape. And when you read something like that, and, and although the papers describe Greenham as certainly a very upstanding, well-respected manufacturer, you wonder why then would he be assaulted on the coup? You think it was a contract job, don't you? I do. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely do. And, and I think I know there, why. You can smell creditor. <laughs> yes, certainly. That's exactly what it was. He ran up a massive amount of debt. And he is bailed out on a couple of occasions. In fact, I've so far found he was in debt. He was bankrupt, certainly, in the early 1820s, but he was in trouble before that. And it actually ties in with the date of the assault on the coom. And I think it's certainly a creditor. It's too organised, the bystanders allowing the ruffian escape. Uh, it all ties in. He had a huge amount of debt and the people who bail him out are the Pims, the Pym brothers. Um, on each occasion, they allow him uh, finance to refinance the industry. The second time, though, they put one of the Pims in on the management team. So obviously we're watching our investment, if you like. And we're I can see a hostile takeover. Very on. much yeah. so, very much Is so. that what happens? It is, because conveniently, or very sadly, I should say, Mr Greenham dies. And by 1826, the PIMS now find themselves in a situation where they're not no longer just dealing in fancy goods in their shops and importing raw cotton. They are now involved in manufacture. And this is when our Greenmount moves on to the control of the PIM family. And there's an association at some point with linen, isn't there? This is where the this is where it changes right. because obviously from the Act of Union onwards, weaving was running into all sorts of problems. I, I, I know I came across another reference, 1829, the Earl of Kildare mentioning that uh, 20,000 looms are silent in Dublin. So we're in trouble. We're in trouble with this industry. And the PIMs reinvent themselves with this new manufacturing plant that they've inherited, Greenmount. And they then look at turning it into other products. So... If you take the area as a whole, 
The other thing that's quite noticeable in that part of town are two army barracks. So you've one at Welling, would have been Wellington Barracks. We know it as Griffith College mm. today. And of course, the other one's at Portobello. Called Brewer Barracks. Yeah, yeah. So it would have been Portobello Marks at yep. this particular time. And they discover that it is better for soldiers to be wearing linen shirts because if you're injured in a linen shirt, there is a better chance of the wound healing than there would be if you were using any other type of material. This is because the bullet or the musket ball or whatever it is, penetrates and how most soldiers die is from an infection Infection. from the cloth rather than from the bullet. bullet. So linen, Linen, why is linen different? uh, Because of the type of fibres that are in it. So the bullet wouldn't basically carry the cloth into the body. And so here's another opportunity (laughs) for the mill to actually provide for the the army barracks that are nearby. So these become important contracts. So from that, then we develop a whole linen industry and the Greenmount linen spinning mill and cotton spinning mill. They were really, really important from the point of view of industry in Dublin. And do they move beyond providing shirts for soldiers? Do they move into the sort of the finer, producing finer goods than that? We have to. We very much have to. So we're moving forward in time with this story now. And at that point, Greenmount becomes a very, very important industry from the point of view of all sorts of fancy goods. So tablecloths, for example, uh, bed linen, anything like that. And they are very, very forward thinking because even in the Great Exhibition in Dublin, we find them having a stand and winning medals for new ideas and new products that they have available. What happens then when we move into the Ireland of the Irish Free State? Yeah, isn't it? The Ireland of the Irish Free State, well, we have to take account of what industries we've got. And of course, all through the 1920s, huge efforts are being made to look at our industries and develop them with one eye on the American market all the time. So think, if you think, for example, of Waterford Glass or Newbridge Cutlery or even Belique, all of that type of high-end fancy goods were very important. And this is where having a green mount tablecloth with the lovely green ribbon on it, which spoke Ireland and maybe having a pattern in it that represented the four provinces or shamrocks or something like that became the must have item. And again, as we move through the 20th century, so we sort of fast forwarded in history a little bit here. But as we move through the 20th century, having a tablecloth in this fancy box, they're almost the go to wedding present all through um, the 20th century. And it links up then, as most of our businesses do, it linked up with the Boyne Mill in Drogheda. And this is where we got the famous name Greenmount and Boyne Linen Company. It's a great example of a cross-border business too because the distribution was through Belfast. So this is one of these things that actually crossed the border and developed as the country developed. So where are we now with Green Mountain Boyne Linen, with with Green Mountain Mill? What is it now? Okay, so if we leave the mill to one side just for a minute and we just think about the linen, um, one of the things that they actually specialised in were a particular type of serviette that had a 
buttonhole in the corner. And these became a total luxury item and they were used for all of our railway hotels all around the country. And why the buttonhole in the corner, Miles? Well, this is for the gentlemen when they're sitting down to have their dinner. You could actually button it onto your shirt so your serviette wouldn't move. So if anyone has the buttonhole serviette, you've got something really special. They became collector's items, these boxed linen, particularly if they're still in the green box with the green ribbon. If they've never been opened, if... Granny had it in the bottom drawer all her life. They're worth the fortune. They're worth the fortune. They're Mm. selling on the internet as collector's items. And you find it as one of those, uh, you know, best in box or almost like a Star Wars figure, you know. But these Green Mountain Boyne linen products are really collector's items And presumably, as the case where a a well-known painter dies, suddenly the value of his of his paintings absolutely soars because these aren't being produced anymore. They're not being produced. Sadly, they're not being produced. And the reason, of course, if we come right up pretty much to present day, the mill, more or less, the production in the mill stopped as we joined the EEC because it could no longer compete with the European markets. Belgian, German, they were much further ahead in the type of production in their particular linen mills. So, by 1972, we lose um, the mill at Harold's Cross. Uh, we also lost the distribution place in Belfast. But the one at the Boyne in Drogheda, it struggled on, I think, until the early 1980s. But they've all closed up now. But with the closure of the mill, as you say, no longer produced, now Greenmount and Boyne linen are collector's items. Mm. But also fascinating that this is something that lasted from the 12th century to the 20th century. So it continued for the guts of 800 years. Absolutely. It saw 800 years of domination, didn't it? it? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and around it, it's still, it's still a mill world. The mill building, the Victorian mill building is still there in the middle, used for small industries. I think there is one fashion industry in it. So it's still linked in some way. But the old mill house is there. And if you listen really carefully, you can still hear the river puddle flowing under your feet, bringing us right back to the monks <laughs> when they increased the water supply at the beginning. Fantastic story, Cathy. Thank you very, very much indeed to, uh, for t- telling us the story of the history of Greenmount Mill, one that spans the centuries from the Norman conquest right up to our own independence and indeed right up to the point where we joined what was then the European Economic uh, Community. And there'd probably be a few people checking their tablecloths and serviettes <laughs> to see, hopefully they're still in the box, to see if they were made by uh, Greenmount and Boyne. Cathy Scuffle, thank you very much indeed. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Ian Kennelly. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. From me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>